Miguel Urquiola is Professor of Economics and International and Public Affairs and serves as Chair of the Economics Department at Columbia University. He is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a fellow at the Bureau for Research and Economic Analysis of Development. Miguel's research focuses on the economics of education, an area of research where he has published on school choice and public education and on how universities have built their reputations through their research activities. Miguel's research on these topics have appeared in some of the leading journals in the discipline of economics, including the prestigious American Economic Review, the Review of Economics and Statistics, the Journal of Public Economics, and the Journal of Development Economics, among others. Miguel is also author of the forthcoming book, Markets, Minds, and Money, why America Leads the World in University Research. The book focuses on the evolution of the free market approach to higher education in the United States. It documents how American universities were initially weak at research, how U.S. universities improved along the way, and how they retain their lead as world leaders. I invited Miguel to the Dean's Table to talk about how he decided on becoming an economist, to reflect on his work that explores whether increased school choice helps families and students choose schools that add more value, and to give us insight into how the United States became a leader in producing world-class research. Miguel, welcome to the Dean's Table. Thanks very much for the invitation, Fred. So, you were educated at Swarthmore College, a distinguished liberal arts college near Philadelphia. So many of my friends attended uh, Swarthmore and referred to the college as Sweatmore. <laughs> because of its academic uh, rigor, what was your experience like at uh, Swarthmore? I think it was somewhat along those lines. <laughs> uh, it is known for attracting a relatively intense student. Uh -huh. And I think on top of that, it had this culture of having these small seminars. Uh, there was this honors program where for two years one only did seminars. And they're very focused on kind of like not meeting that often and doing a lot of work in between, and <laughs> that yeah. was my experience. Yeah. Right. It was a good experience. Great. So how did you go about choosing Swarthmore as a college you wanted to attend? It's a good question. You know, I'm, I'm originally from South America, from, mm -hmm. from Bolivia, mm -hmm. and back then uh, there was very little information, and one of my father's friends had casually told me that I should go to a small school. Mm -hmm. And once visiting the U.S. for kind of vacation, I bought a Barron's book, and so huh. I looked for what at the time was the highest rated small school, and I said, this is where I want to go. Uh -huh. <laughs> and my father, who was pretty hands-off, said, okay. But I chose it as many schools were chosen at some point with very little information. Uh, it mm -hmm. has a beautiful campus. And when I got there, I, uh, it was clear to me I had never seen a picture of it. Oh, really? So you hadn't visited the I hadn't the seen campus. a picture visited or anything. And obviously, it was pre-internet when, you know, now uh, mm -hmm. uh, basically kids know a lot by the time they set foot on campus. Right. Yeah. So you majored both in economics and in political science. True. So, true. Um, true. But you became an economist. And so since I'm a political scientist, I want to know why didn't you go to graduate school in political science? In political science. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> question. I think I started actually being somewhat interested in history. I took some classes there and also political science. And then, uh, like many students do, I casually took uh, Econ 1 because that's a standard way of fulfilling some requirement or doing something. Mm -hmm. And it, 
it appealed to me, basically. I think uh, many Latin Americans would tell the story that seeing economic crisis, you sort of want to understand how these mm-hmm. came about, and economics appealed to me in that way, and yeah, that's, I think, why I, I kept up with it. Although, as you say, I, I didn't lose interest in other areas, <laughs> right. or even in, in, in history, as that book you mentioned illustrates. Right. So, but before starting graduate school, you worked for a couple of years for the Ministry of Planning in Bolivia. True. Uh, what was that experience like? What did you do? It was a very good experience. Uh, so I went there, and I was uh, looking for a job, and they basically, so I, I thought I would do macroeconomics. It was a very hmm. influential job in that way. Uh, that's what I had liked most in college. And then they said, you know, we can hire you, but we're full up on macro people. So we would okay. like someone to look at education budgets to basically do educational finance. Yeah. And that's what put me onto education, and then that's basically where I stayed. So it had an impact in the end. Right. So what kind of projects did you work on? There? Why, yeah, because you were there oh, for, what, two years? I was there for two years. So they would be actually rather different projects than I think, uh, you know, many people at this level in the U.S. would have. It's a poor country, Bolivia. It was a very mm-hmm. small research outfit. Uh, and so some of them were fairly direct involvement with policy, working with vice ministers or ministers dealing with university budgets or stuff like this, or, oh. you know, ranging to writing a speech for the minister here and mm-hmm. there. It was basically, it's a small country. Mm-hmm. It's poor. So you, you right. get more involved uh, much quicker than is usually the case. Right. Yeah. And so from there, you went to graduate school at the University of California, sure. Berkeley. So yeah. did you choose graduate school the same way you chose your undergraduate? No, no, no. I was much more informed by then. <laughs> and as you know, uh-huh. basically, economics tends to produce, uh, like many fields, these, uh, you know, there's lots of information in fairly ranked places. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, my teachers at Swarthmore had already told me, mm-hmm. you know, these are the X schools you will look at. <laughs> this is the order you will go to. Them. Right. And so, yeah, it was much more informed. I was happy to get into Berkeley and had a good experience there also. Yeah. Right. By the way, just going back a bit, why did you feel that you had to go and sort of have that experience working in a bureaucracy in, in Bolivia? Do you think it was necessary for your graduate studies? That's a good question. I don't think it was necessary. I had a teacher at Swarthmore, uh, Bernard Safran was his name, a Mm well-known economist who has since passed away. And he once told me, even if your goal in life is to get a PhD and be an academic, he said, it will serve you well to go and work someplace and to do something real for a couple of years. It makes you more concentrated. It makes you more focused, as you know. And it certainly affected my research path. By Mm -hmm. the time I got to Berkeley, I knew I wanted to do the economics of education. So it was true in that way, Uh, although as many things one does when one is young, you know, there would have been other paths. I just thought this this makes sense, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's very specific because, you know, the, the economics of education, you know, people go in to sort of study macroeconomics or yeah. microeconomics, you know, uh, economic theory, Correct. trade. Um, this is fairly specific. Yeah, this is very specific. Yeah, I think it was a product of my work there also. Uh, when I started working there, uh, my boss uh, raised th- that a couple of us who were working there and were new should go into sort of like this area. And he said, why don't you travel to Chile? Hmm. Sort of see what's going on there. Chile is a leading country in Latin America. You can mm-hmm. see what reforms are happening. This is And so there I saw, you know, these like voucher systems and school choice systems. And so I got into educational competition, which which in a way is an old economic area since Milton Friedman and others wrote about it. But at the same time, as you well say, it is fairly specific. So I think I I landed onto kind of a specific area early. It's true. Yeah. yeah. You know Eric Hanushek? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's my former colleague at University right, of Rochester. At, at Rochester, yes. And uh, that's the only other person I knew who did the economics of education. No, it's true. It it used to be an even more specific area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
Well, we may talk about him in a moment. So, sure. But let's talk about your research on primary and secondary education. You just mentioned part of it a moment ago. You've done some interesting work on the dynamics of school choice. Um, in one piece, you provide some nuance to the work of the famous economist, as you just mentioned, uh, Milton Friedman. Mm -hmm. As you and your co-author state in this piece, this is Bentley McLeod, who's our colleague here mm -hmm. uh, at Columbia, and quoting here, Milton Friedman argued that giving parents freedom to choose schools would improve education. His argument was simple and compelling because it extended results from markets for consumer goods to education. We review the evidence which yields surprisingly mixed results on Friedman's prediction, unquote. The big takeaway from this piece, by the way, and I'm here also quoting directly, households often seem to choose schools based on their absolute achievement rather than their value added. In other words, based on how good their student skills are as opposed to how good they are at improving their student skills. So could you say more about what you mean by choice being decided by absolute achievement rather than value added? Sure. So basically what we understand by a school's value added might be at, uh, how good the school is at raising student skills. Mm -hmm. So for example, a uh, university, let's say, that had high value added would be very good at teaching students to be a good engineer or to be a good political scientist or what it were. Mm -hmm. uh, by absolute achievement, we basically mean just which ones produce the students who are the most successful. or They may also be the schools that have incoming very good achievement. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for example, you could find a very fancy school that takes in very good students and mm -hmm. naturally those students will do very well afterwards. And that could be, in some sense, a school with low value added if it's really not teaching that well. And conversely, one could find a school that took students who knew little and then really elevated them and taught them a lot. And what we work out, and I think one thing I have learned about school competition is that, mm -hmm. you know, we would like as policymakers or as basically academics or as economists people to choose the schools that are most productive, the schools that have high value added. Right. And in my observation, people don't always do that. Uh, so well, Why don't they do that? Do they have the information to do that? That's a good question. So one possibility is that they can't observe the value added. But what we show in that particular paper, which you mentioned, is that even if the value added were fully observable, basically families might rationally choose the low value added school. And the reason for that is basically that schools provide other services. For example, suppose that you go to a school that is fancy and you, mm -hmm. and I'll say how it's fancy in one second, but you observe that it has low value added, but it's a school that places students into the right school trajectory or where you make very valuable friends because you have very fancy peers, so to speak, mm -hmm. then you might rationally say, well, even though I can see that it has lower value added, I will rationally trade that off and I will still choose that. Uh, these things can happen as long as, for example, there is a limited number of schools. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that sometimes educational markets get into these configurations where basically people make that trade off willingly. As you mentioned, this goes back to Friedman in the sense that what economists usually, how we usually think of a market is mm -hmm. that uh, is that consumers will choose the firms that have the highest productivity or value added. And that's right. a market that works well. Mm -hmm. And so our intuition should be the school market should work in that way also, so that the free market must be the best thing. And I think one thing that I've, uh, you know, this is not a non-controversial position, but it's something that I've basically come to conclude and, and that we elaborate on in that paper that doesn't always happen. Right. Yeah. So this is the thing, and it goes back to my question about information. So do you think people are confusing reputation with quality of education? I mean, couldn't they be one and the same? Yeah, so I think people, obviously, they must understand what they think is quality, and they must choose the school that, for them, is the highest quality. Because, you know, people usually, uh, we don't think of them making mistakes and stuff like this. 
It's just that that basically what I would say is quality is probably multidimensional. And mm -hmm. so you could say, you know, on the one hand, this school is good at teaching, but on the other hand, it may produce good outcomes such as good networks. People, you know, families, when they're choosing schools, might have in mind that my kid could meet someone here and marry this person, mm -hmm. right? So that they're thinking of a fairly fairly sophisticated, multidimensional product. And the ability to teach well or to have high value added, as we would like in sort of creating what economists call human capital, mm -hmm. is only one dimension. Mm -hmm. And the consumer might rationally say, okay, that's, that's great, and I see that dimension, but there's also other things that I'm looking for. And so I won't always choose the one that has highest value added. I think basically it comes down to sort of schools do lots of things. And one of the things that, that they do is, as you say, sort of provide a reputation that's tied up a lot with how good the people coming into the school are. Mm -hmm. So for example, I'll cite a paper by an economist recently, Josh Angris at, at MIT, that shows that Stuyvesant High School here in New York City, mm -hmm. which is extremely, extremely selective, mm -hmm. in his results does not necessarily have a higher value added than other schools that provide the alternatives to the kids who go there. Even at the independent, private independent schools? Uh, more relative to other public schools. Public schools. Yeah. In, in New York or just nationwide? In, uh, here in New York City. Okay. The paper is titled The Elite Illusion, sort of as if the elite is kind of deluded and really wants to get this. And what we point out in that theoretical paper with Bentley is that this may be a rational response, that they say, look, getting the, as you say, reputation, the sort of Stuyvesant stamp on my forehead might mm -hmm. be so valuable that I'm willing to do that, even if it is the case that it has lower value added in some dimension. Although, once again, it's a multidimensional product, and they might see that it has high value added in other dimensions, and that's kind of the trade-off that we emphasize. Right, right. I may be asking this question another way, but I, I find it fascinating. So does the average parent know about the marginal gains in educational improvement? That's a good question. Probably not, right? So so uh, uh, beyond that also, uh, as, as you already raised, like we can get these results and we do that, get these results even if we assume that parents observe everything. Mm -hmm. But you are absolutely right. I know that you have, you have chosen schools <laughs> as, a, as a parent, so have I. Right. And as a parent, one is much less sure about everything and also right. one is aware that one's kid may be different than the modal kid at that school right. in different ways. Mm -hmm. And you say, I wonder whether, you know, maybe the school is actually very good for my kid or not good, even if it is different for other kids. So you're right. The, Beyond that, there's an informational challenge, and that just aggravates the issue. I would argue that there are other markets where we have fewer informational challenges. Like if you buy an mm -hmm. Apple computer, which I see that you're using, <laughs> right. uh, it's easier for you to sort of know what that is. And the other issue is that you have bought a computer several times in your life. So if you decide that you don't like Apple, then you can switch to IBM or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, with college, we usually go once, uh, mm -hmm. and by the time you discover right. that it may not be that well suited, it's, it's too late. Too late. So markets are different. <laughs> yes. I... Okay. Let's switch to your work on vouchers. You you mentioned it earlier. You've published extensively on the topic of vouchers, particularly in Chile, which in that country's case, uh, they adopted a universal voucher program in the 1980s. Yes. You found that in Chile's case, public school performance as measured by test scores got significantly worse with the implementation of vouchers. You conclude that the program was, quote, disappointing reform effort, noting specifically, and I'm quoting here, school choice and the privatization of schools are fun things to argue about, but in terms of real effects, they are a bit <laughs> of a red herring, you say, and you go on, the evidence indicates that perhaps surprisingly, such reforms do not make education really good. They do not make it really bad either. Your finding from your work in Chile flies in the face of advocates of educational vouchers in the U.S. who believe that vouchers can improve public education, especially for poor kids. 
What does your research tell us about what's likely to happen if educational vouchers are adopted widely here in the U.S.? Right. So I think that it's interesting you cite, you know, what I would call fairly old papers. And, <laughs> and it's always huh? fun to, to hear what one wrote a long time ago. You say, well, I, Have I you updated no, your, your views no, on No, no, I don't think I've updated. I would update the, the way in which I put it. But let me, okay. let, me, let me explain. I mean, no, I don't update any of the bottom lines. I think that those are pretty much what I think <laughs> till now. But let me tell you okay. uh, sort of how I see this. So in the more theoretical work I've done since that paper, which, mm-hmm. uh, which you cite there, including, as you mentioned, with Bentley McLeod, one thing that we show is that if there is a free market in education and people care about things like reputation and sort of care about peers, as I mentioned, having fancy friends, this and that, what such a market will naturally do if it's left unfettered, as Milton Friedman would say, is it will segregate people. It mm-hmm. will basically segregate you know, the, either the highly able or the artistic or the rich or the into certain schools. Uh, when that happens, if you introduce vouchers, which give people a lot of choice, and that happens, what happens is that the public schools, in the case of Chile, often begin to lose, quotes, uh, some of the best kids. Uh, and it's not that they're, you know, the best in the sense that they have high achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that the voucher makes those schools lower value added or somehow damages what the teachers are doing there. It just kind of mechanically hurts them because they are losing the, the, the most privileged, so to speak, students. And why are they losing those students? Because those students would rather be segregated on their own, right? So, like, they would rather form clubs, uh, loosely speaking, schools where, you know, if I'm a very talented student, I would rather be with other talented students, which is what we see naturally emerging in many free educational markets, the Mm -hmm. U.S. universities, as you mentioned, being one of them, that they sort of stratify. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that this process damages the public schools necessarily. It makes them look bad mechanically, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what, what we basically pointed out happened in the case of Chile. So education becomes more economically stratified, that's, right? That's definitely what happened in... So there's an abandonment by the upper middle yes. class or so middle... The, 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 yes. Basically, the, the story of what happened in Chile is that as vouchers were given, as you said, universally to everyone, the middle class largely left, uh, largely left public schools. So if you go to a Chilean city these days, something like 60 or 70 percent of the enrollment will be in private schools, many of which are voucher subsidized. And then the people who are left in the public sector tend to be poorer. And so that the public sector looks worse, you know, naturally, just because it's been left with people who come in with less initial achievement. Um, I don't think that this means necessarily that the private sector is better uh, in the sense of value added or that the public sector has been made worse. This is why I use that term red herring in, in the... In the sense that there's nothing per se about a school being private or public that is causing this. It's just mm-hmm. this natural kind of sorting scheme. And I said something which you mentioned there, which is introducing competition is not, you know, sort of the, I said fun to argue because basically whether schools should be private or public is something that even in like politics, I think is is like a litmus test. We say something, we ask someone, what do you think of private education? And we think that they're telling us a lot about them. Uh, and that I view, my research has taught me at least, that this is a bit of a red herring, that there's nothing a priori that mm-hmm. one should have for or against private schools. It's more a question of what are the incentives going in. So, for example, one could imagine, uh, I think that the U.S. sort of happened upon a different design, which is interesting, which is charter schools. Mm-hmm. You could allow charter schools to even be for profit. Uh, one thing that I like about charter schools is that they often in the U.S. have these rules that say if you're oversubscribed, you must randomly choose kids through a lottery, mm-hmm. right? This makes it harder for them to build their reputation on, I just select kids who are initially already able. If I have to select random kids, I'll be more likely to have to find out some way to teach well, actually. Mm -hmm. So one could have lots of choice like Freeman wanted. One could even have 
for-profit participation, but design it in a way that is more likely to raise value-added or productivity. I don't think Chile did that. Uh, partially, I think it was just that at the time, in the early 80s, this wasn't well understood. Mm -hmm. uh, is there still a voucher program in Chile? There still is a voucher program in Chile basically 30 years later. It's going strong, uh, oh. and there is still a lot of discussion. As you know, Chile recently suffered this kind of mini-political explosion. There were these riots and yes. things like that. And I think my own reading, it's hard to know exactly why these riots happened, but for a few years already, maybe like 10, um, Chile has been having these strong protests. A lot of them are by students. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that basically the, the country is still trying to figure out how to design its educational system. Dis you know, if vouchers were a silver bullet, Chile would have been done. You would have done this in 1980, and right mm -hmm. now you'd be golden. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, they're not. And they create things like sorting and exclusion, and mm -hmm. I think that's part of what that society is trying to deal with. Uh, also, if you let markets run loose, uh, you often get into situations where, where it's hard to reverse uh, mm -hmm. things. And I think that's one thing Chile has discovered also. Yeah. But again, what could we learn here in the U.S., particularly for those advocates who are pushing vouchers? Right. Would you expect the same thing that ended up in Chile? I think or? that if one implemented the vouchers as they are in Chile, I would expect the, the same thing, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there has been some learning. As I mentioned, for example, in the U.S., actually, vouchers are a fairly small phenomenon. There's yeah. not a lot of... What has grown a lot, for example, are charter oh, schools. Charter schools, charter right. Schools. But even with the charter schools, could, is there something we could learn? Yeah, and I... Would I, there be a wholesale abandonment of public schools even in... Uh, affluent areas? I think ultimately it does hurt public schools. Uh -huh. However, I think that the charter school uh, model is better designed than, then, say, the uh, universal vouchers okay. uh, system in Sweden or in Chile. It has some good properties, uh, and it has also been shown in the U.S. that some charter schools, not all, do actually have pretty good value added. So I think that the U.S., you know, for whatever reason, did come generally onto a better design to introduce school choice than Chile did. Okay. So let's talk about your forthcoming book, sure. um, Markets, Minds, and Money, Why America Leads the World in University Research, to be published very soon by Harvard University Press. What is this book about? So basically one way of saying what this book is about is that I had made a reputation for myself, as you mm -hmm. said, <laughs> such as it is my reputation, for basically saying that the market does not deliver good things in education. And I right. had said that about uh, vouchers in in Chile. Mm -hmm. And then for various reasons, uh, this wasn't the only reason, but I thought maybe I should say something about when markets work well in education. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I would say is that if one wants to create a university sector that produces good research, uh, the free market is actually one good way of achieving this. And basically what I argue in that book is that that has been the case over time in the U.S. Initially, actually, the market was something that made the research sector weak in the U.S., but with time and given certain dynamics, it improved. And mm -hmm. so I've tried to sort of think about markets in education, but in a different setting and relative to a different outcome as uh, research rather than, say, value-added in K-12. through Right. So let's get back to this question of reputation. We talked about it in primary and secondary schools. Let's think about it more in your research. Yeah. yeah. So the primary tool you use to measure a university's research output is the number of Nobel Prize winners, right? Mm -hmm. You give credit to each university that the Nobel winner studied and taught at. So, for instance, you know, if the Nobel recipient was a graduate of Columbia or a professor at one time at Columbia, that would count as a measure of prestige. Yes. Um, the measure, you argue, captures intellectual development of the university over time. Now, you admit that this is not a perfect measure of reputation since it excludes quality measures in the humanities. Mm -hmm. Did you consider other measures of reputation in your study? Yeah, so I think that, you know, if we wanted to measure a university's research output right now, mm -hmm. 
uh, there's lots of measures, uh, and I've used those in other research. For example, we could uh, look at articles produced or books produced, sites mm -hmm. and stuff like this, and there would be very good measures. Um, and you know, there's no perfect measure, but there would be lots of them. In the book, as you well well explain, I basically look at the Nobel Prize because basically the interest in the book was trying to go as far back as possible. Mm -hmm. And of course, even though the Nobel Prize is limited to some fields and so on right. and so forth, the benefit is it has been around a long time. So I just looked for a rough and ready measure that would let me go even into the 1800s. Right. Uh, and that's why I focused on that. But if one did it more recently, uh, one could use a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and by that measure, which you cite, for example, the U.S. was basically at the bottom of the pack uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, into the late 1800s. In terms of the Nobel. Yeah. And at some level, that's not so surprising. For example, it wasn't until late in the 1800s that Yale first awarded a Ph.D. The, the U.S. was just not active in sort of high-level scholarship mm -hmm. uh, in this period. What that measure illustrates is that the U.S. began to improve you know, around then, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, I think, uh, on a very steep improvement trajectory, certainly by 1910 or mm -hmm. something like this. Uh, and one reason I also wanted this long-term measure is that some educational historians and some economists who have emphasized that World War II really changed the, right, the performance of American right. university. And as an economist, you know, that could be true or not, but I sort of wanted to think what market dynamics were there. And mm -hmm. when I look at the data, I see the, the improvement of American universities beginning much earlier. Okay. So tell us, our listeners, when do you start? Where does your analysis start in terms of, of time? Yes. So uh, for the U.S. case. Yeah, yeah. For the U.S. case. Yeah. So, uh, but you also look at German universities. I also look at German Yeah. So the, the first part of the book basically starts with American universities, or you know, colleges, I should say, mm -hmm. since the colony. Uh, and as you mentioned, I claim that the market at that point made colleges weak. And the mm -hmm. reason I claim is going back to the stuff on Chile. People in Chile might have wanted to stratify by income, by education, you know, by sort of uh, socioeconomic status, as we would say, <laughs> in the mm -hmm. university. In the American colonies and into the 1800s, uh, one thing that people wanted to, uh, to basically sort out by was their religious affiliation, their mm -hmm. sort of like denomination. Presbyterians wanted to go to school with, with Presbyterians, Baptists with Baptists, and so on and so forth. They also wanted to go to college close to home. Mm -hmm. And this created massive entry by colleges in the U.S., there were something like 900 colleges opened mm -hmm. uh, between independence and the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And this kept the colleges very small and very poor mm -hmm. uh, and therefore focused on very basic instruction and almost nothing having to do with research. Columbia College, for example, had long periods where it had five teachers and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, 80 students, mm -hmm. long period. After the Civil War, what basically changed uh, is that there started to be the colleges, and through the 1800s, but particularly after the Civil War, some colleges realized that there was a demand for more specialized instruction. Okay. Uh, and that one could maybe try to offer something at a higher level and more specialized. Uh, many people realized this through the 1800s, I go through in, in the book, but mm -hmm. it was hard to achieve, basically. Two schools that really revolutionized things, I think. One was Cornell, which and, basically right. came in and tried to offer lots of things. The other, of course, that's famous is Johns Hopkins. Hopkins, right. Yes. Did it have one of the first Ph.D. programs in the country? Uh, is that the, right? the first one, ironically somewhat, was Yale. Oh, okay. Uh, because Yale was considered this very conservative place, mm -hmm. uh, and in many ways it still is. <laughs> but, uh, but Hopkins was the first university that, mm -hmm. uh, getting back to something you mentioned, tried to model itself somewhat on a German university, right. which was much more you know, trying to teach at a graduate level. And these two schools basically showed that one could do this. Now, granted, they had big donations, Cornell and Hopkins right. money. Uh, right. And state help in the case of Cornell through right. the Morrill Act. Right. Uh, but they basically showed that this could be done. And at that point, schools like Harvard and like Columbia, some all incumbents had to decide what to do. Harvard and Columbia responded very aggressively and went into mm -hmm. this 
you know, trying to create professional schools, trying to Expansion create... Expansion in the late 19th century. That's right, creating arts and sciences departments. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I claim that basically by 1900, roughly, these schools were really on an upward trajectory, training people, trying to get qualified researchers and so right. on. So did their longevity count at any level? Because there are also new entrants around yes. this time in the late 19th century, like the University of Chicago. Yes. And then I guess later on Stanford. Stanford or also around right. then, yes. So I think basically in the market, when when a market changes like that, you can mm -hmm. get entrants. And you know certainly there were uh, entrants who, that changed the system like Cornell and Hopkins. And as you say, entrants at that point that really became very successful, like Chicago and Stanford. I think longevity helps in the sense that the older schools, like the Ivy League, for example, had a bit more time to react to this. So let me like raise a contrast between two sets of schools. On the one hand, you, you have Princeton and Yale that moved relatively late, but mm -hmm. of course they were very rich schools, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of comparatively with a long history and with good alumni networks. In a way, Princeton and Yale had the luxury of sort of thinking about this. Would they go in this path? Princeton hasn't fully gone down this path even now. Right. Uh, contrast that with universities like Clark University, which was actually right. doing quite well and quite accomplished. This is in Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah. That got completely blown out of the water for several reasons. But one was that basically Chicago went and with the Rockefeller money essentially poached half of their faculty away. And I did not know that. Yes. So that basically uh, Princeton or a Yale could afford at some level, mm -hmm. you know, longevity helps and its brand helps to take it slower and make very good decisions, whereas Clark stumbled a little bit, and next right. thing you know, Chicago had right. had taken its position. So I think that in all educational markets, longevity helps. There's this book by um, Golden and Katz at mm -hmm. Harvard that you know one of the things that they point out is that even though Stanford and Chicago are super successful schools, mm -hmm. uh, we don't see in this top elite in the US uh, schools that came into existence after roughly 1920. I don't know ex exactly what the date that they point to is. Mm -hmm. Later on, it's been much harder to open schools that would rise to the top. Yeah. So this is an interesting sort of story because what we normally get, I guess, because they're written as history is the great man theory, the great president's theory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These great men who came in and just turned everything around. And this is why you know, people like Seth Lowe and there's yeah. the guy, I can't remember his name, the University of Chicago who was a famous figure who created, created it in the late 19th century. Um, leadership doesn't figure in any of this? So in the book, I actually you know, uh, often give at least half a page, maybe two pages, to speaking about these people. And mm -hmm. some, some of them, like Charles Eliot at Harvard, oh, are oh. You know, very much part of the book. I think th that the leaders matter in the sense that the leaders kind of see the opportunity, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and for example, Hopkins would not have had that lead were not that Gilman, the president there. So I think actually that leaders do matter. That's my sense. Of course, you know, had there not been an Andrew White at Cornell, someone mm -hmm. else would have occupied that space. So mm -hmm. I, I think that the market dynamics that allowed this to happen, it, it would have been someone else. Okay. In that sense, I don't think that the leader is crucial. But if you want to know why Columbia did better than that school, I think mm -hmm. that the leaders can really matter there. Uh, Barnard was a key leader for Columbia. Right. Yeah. So one of the most interesting points you just mentioned a, a moment ago you make in your book is that you argue that World War II did not dramatically increase the quality of American universities. Mm -hmm. um, and so the conventional wisdom is that the war effort encouraged the U.S. government to invest lots of funds into the physical and natural sciences, for instance, yeah. mm -hmm. and into uh, computation sciences that in turn helped to nurture the development of the quantitative social sciences like econ and political science, mm -hmm. actually. Why wasn't World War II a critical juncture for the development of American research universities? Right. That's a question. I, it should be clear. I think World War II is really, really important for two reasons. One is that 
most mechanically, basically, there were many German, particularly Jewish scientists who just left and mm -hmm. came to, to the U.S., and that surely strengthened many departments, particularly science. Uh, and second, as a result of the war, uh, federal funding increased a lot, as you say, and that has, you know, even though it, it has declined in more recent years, that really helped American universities a lot. So I think that the impact of World War II is important. Uh, it certainly is important to explaining things like why the German universities lost their lead and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that my point is that really World War II alone would probably not have improved American universities that much, that what mm. was necessary was a structure that was already in place mm -hmm. for basically the U.S. to take advantage of this talent fleeing or uh, mm. funding coming in. And what I argue in the book is that structure came into place already you know, in, in the late 19th century, mm. that by the 1930s or the early 1930s, the U.S. university was ready uh, and was already attracting top talent, but it was certainly ready to get more money and to attract more top talent. So I think that World War II is very important. I just don't think it is what really changed the course of American university research. You also note that the highest quality research output in the U.S. comes from approximately 1% of colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. What are the factors that led to schools being a part of that 1%? Was it just having a large endowment for much of the uh, school's history, as we mentioned Mentioned yeah. a little bit uh, ago, does that matter, or uh, is the one percent a result of a self-fulfilling prophecy, in a sense, in a yeah. sense that elite decision makers confer strong reputations on a select few universities? Yeah, that's certainly relevant to the general story. So basically, the one percent reflects that one thing that an educational market would do. Getting back to those models that you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. is it creates stratification and, so to speak, winners and losers. And mm -hmm. the the one percent in one dimension are winners in the sense that they have, as you mentioned, a lot of money, a lot of endowment, and access to a lot of talent. Essentially, mm -hmm. they're able to get their their pick of faculty and so on and so forth. What accounts for that? Uh, part of it is just the natural forces of the market. But as you say. There is an element, not purely, like if you were one of the people who moved early. So let's look at you know one of the most successful universities. Harvard ha has everything going for it, right? It mm -hmm. basically is the oldest school, right. age matters. It had a large endowment, and mm -hmm. it also benefited from good leadership mm -hmm. uh, in the form of Elliot. And so by the time Harvard started making its reforms, it was, uh, I use this term in the book, it got into what I would call like a virtuous circle, which is basically it starts getting prestige, it hires good people, that helps it get good students. Those people turn around and give money when they graduate, and basically it just feeds on itself. And as other educational researchers like Caroline Hawksby have mm -hmm. pointed out, on the other side, there are losers also, right? Because there might be a university that you know was initially not so different from Harvard College mm -hmm. that basically didn't make the right moves and then falls off in either selectivity or wealth and so on. And so I think that one of the things that markets naturally do is they create inequality sometimes. And the U.S., as we know well, is the poster child for sort of the market mechanisms that create inequality. I guess one point that I'm making in the book is that in terms of generating university research, this can actually be a good mechanism in the sense that it, it has produced a 1% of schools that are very well resourced that, that do very well. In other senses, like the Chilean public schools, which you mentioned, this, mm -hmm. these type of market mechanisms may not produce things we like. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that that's part of what went on. There are good old schools in the U.S., like let me mention Amherst College or Williams, mm. right. which interestingly, these two schools, for example, were historically stronger if one looks at the history than, say, Columbia College. Mm -hmm. They were wealthier, they were stronger, they were often considered uh, better reputation. Those two schools are still wealthy. On the other hand, they opted not to go down the Columbia path, which is to try to create a major Richard. university. It was right. a conscious decision. Uh, and so if you're wealthy enough and old enough, you know, you could still retain a very nice position in the market. Swarthmore actually is not, you know, it also falls, mm -hmm. falls into this category. 
But other schools that didn't have that are much less selective and much less prestigious these days, and that illustrates this sort of inequality tendency. But does it also demonstrate that the 1% has changed very little over the years? I mean, yes. you mentioned Hopkins and Cornell. Yes. And then Yale and Harvard and Columbia yes. came on later on. And so if yes. you look at U.S. World News World Report rankings, whatever one might think of yeah. those such based on, yeah, such as they are, and those are the same schools that are pretty Absolutely. much. Absolutely. And I think that this illustrates part of what, what I mentioned, that educational reputation will tend to be very persistent, right? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I think one market, markets that economists generally like are markets, say, like the cell phone market so or, mm -hmm. or the phone market. If we think about you know, there used to be firms that were dominant, like Palm or Nokia, that we don't even think of today, that are basically dinosaurs and that lost their market position. And these are firms that, you know, were big 20 years ago. Uh, in education, that's not the case, as you well point out. Mm -hmm. uh, there's much more persistence. And I think this speaks to those reputational mechanisms that tend to create persistence and virtuous and vicious circles. But it also speaks to why the Friedman conjecture might not quite hold, right? That it's, it's hard to have a good idea and shake up the university market completely. Whereas it is possible to have a good idea and shake up the phone market completely or, you know, the cab market or, you know, the transportation, the urban transportation market. Uh, they're just different sectors. And so that sort of innovation that is based on productivity, I think, is harder to see in the educational sector. And that speaks of good dynamics and of bad dynamics also. Right. So let's think about this in terms of public universities. Mm -hmm. So what role did the government play in building great research universities, particularly public ones such as University of California, Berkeley, where you got your My doctoral degree, degree yes. Yes. Um, the University of Michigan, mm -hmm. or even with the development of private universities, as you mentioned previously, yes. Cornell University, yes. which got an infusion of public money. Did government funding matter in building reputations in research output, and, and in what ways? I think so. So certainly the government was active uh, you know, initially in distributing funds for the creation of mm -hmm. basically universities in the form of the Morrill Act. Interestingly, the Morrill Act, in a very U.S. fashion, basically uh, allowed for the sale of federal lands to fund universities, uh, but it left who would get the money to each state. So it basically said, you know, the state of Connecticut will get this money and then it can do whatever it wants, but it has to be related to What Connecticut essentially did is give it to Yale. Hmm. Uh, New York State split it a bit, but gave it mainly to Cornell. Uh, other states, uh, Wisconsin did different things. And so there was a lot of flexibility, but that federal subsidy mattered. And as you said, it helped create then that combined with state subsidies, like those available in California and in Michigan, helped create uh, outstanding public universities that, you know, Berkeley, uh, as you know, Fred, uh, given our, mm -hmm. our jobs here, is one of our headaches. Yes. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and that basically compete directly with the private universities, as does Michigan. Uh, the other way in which the federal government uh, helped a lot, as you say, is through the um, research funding mm -hmm. that came, you know, online after World War II. That funding is quite interesting, as I emphasize in the book, because unlike many other types of funding, even in the U.S., that funding does not mind inequality, right? So that the lion's share of the federal research funding goes to schools to this day, like Johns Hopkins and like Wisconsin, basically, the very successful research university, because that funding is based on kind of grant quality. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, the federal government is interesting because when it comes to research funding, it has not resisted inequality. It, it has, I would say, actually reinforced inequality to some extent. Uh, and 
once again, that works well if what one is trying to generate is research. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, and I would say that the role of the state, both the 50 states and the federal, has been very important also in creating a research sector. Cornell, as mentioned, would not exist were it not for the moral funding, and so it has been a big state role. Right. So I want to uh, switch a bit sure. and talk about, still staying on the theme of reputation, and talk about your article uh, you co-authored with some colleagues in American Economic Review called The Big Sort, mm -hmm. um, yes. College Reputation and Labor Market Outcomes. What was this article about? So this article is on the country of Colombia. <laughs> specify that since when I say Columbia people think of us mm -hmm. but uh, so there we look at a university system that exhibits many traits that the US one which there's there's a free market there's mm -hmm. you know schools that do well and uh, and what Columbia did that was interesting is it introduced an end of college exam mm -hmm. that, is, that is major specific and that happens across universities so for example how it would work is that if you're a graduate of a field like economics in Colombia or a field like dentistry was in all kinds of fields mm -hmm. you have to take an exam when you're a senior in college what does this do, and this gets back to the discussion we were having earlier, if you are someone who is at City College, but you've, you were trained well, or you're smart, or your teachers really taught you well, and you think you're just as good an economist or a dentist as someone who's coming out of Columbia, which let's assume has higher prestige, uh, or NYU, you can show through this exam your quality. You can say, look, I may have gone to City College, but I'm actually better than many economists or uh, dentists coming out of NYU, let's say. This should reduce the weight that the labor market places on college reputation. So I, mm -hmm. at that point when I see these tests, I should say, you know, I should hire the person from City College who aced this test rather mm -hmm. than the person from NYU or Columbia who's basically writing on the fact that he or she is pooled with all these fancy people. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we claim in that paper is that the introduction of these tests had kind of this effect in the country of Columbia, that they helped kind of clean up the market a little bit and put the weight more on students' uh, actual skill and on the productivity of schools rather than just reputation. So it's a way of, if you will, cleaning up the market of these, uh, you know, of these bad properties of just writing a reputation and so forth. Right. So the final question I have for sure. you. So I understand that you have a daughter who attends, a, let's say, a well-regarded university north of New York City. Correct. Uh, yes. What advice did you give her when she was making decisions about college? Mm -hmm. Was her final choice influenced by the reputation of the school? Was the choice based on the chance to enhance particular skills? Um, what about the potential for a nice salary post-graduation, as we see from the educational department, which is now <laughs> publishing right. these sorts of things? Um, any of this uh, was a part of her decision. Basically, what I want to know is, what does a kid decide when their dad is an economist of education? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. My answer would probably be not that different from what most kids decide. Um, uh -huh. I think that, you know, my daughter was certainly, you know, because I talk about this stuff all the time, as you can <laughs> see, she was certainly, mm -hmm. you know, like alert to these issues. On the other hand, I don't think that she made a radically different decision than so many of her friends whose parents are lawyers or whatever. Right. Uh, and so I so think... So there was no advantages having a dad? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think that basically, you know, that uh, children like her certainly weigh reputation, and mm -hmm. they certainly, you know, they're very aware, they're keenly aware of, about school prestige. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the, you know, I don't want to say a bad part, but it is something that parents and, mm -hmm. and kids have. If I have to say one thing that surprised me about my daughter that I think is true of many kids is that when they go on these college tours, they have very uh -huh. strong reactions. Oh, uh, really? That's been my experience. So emotions matter in decision-making? Yeah, it's true. You know, so like uh, very, very soon they will, you, I mean, you'll just look around these tours and you'll see that some kids are on their phone or just look uh -huh. kind of like, 
uh, and other ones are engaged and they're kind of like excited and stuff like this. You can see it. And uh -huh. I think this was certainly true of my daughter that she formed very quick reactions to this I like and this I don't like. She uh, based it, on what the, the the look of the campus, the look of the campus, something something you know, some a lecture feel, or some feel about something, but very yeah. quick also. And I think that so part of the reaction is a very like I would say economistic kind of rational reaction, mm -hmm. and part of it is <laughs> is a. Uh, I remember visiting one campus of a very distinguished uh, mm -hmm. college with mm -hmm. my daughter. She will she mm -hmm. will laugh at, if she hears this. And I think fi five minutes into the visit, she said, "This is not my dress." <laughs> <laughs> and it was lapidary. Okay. You know, like okay. That's, that's it. Uh, and so I think that there's both elements of strong rationality and just mm -hmm. uh, just emotion in this, as in many markets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Miguel, thanks for coming through the dean's table. Thanks, but it's been fun. I was nervous about this interview. Oh, but it's no, been a lot this more has fun. Been fun. It's like <laughs> a seminar. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks. thanks. Thank you. The dean's table is produced by Ursula Sommer with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone, Ariana Sullivan, and John Wepler. Our researchers are Emma Flaherty and Angeline Lee. Our logo is by Jessica Lillian. Our music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris.